Hello and welcome to the Veterinary Secrets Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Jones and this is episode 30. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about glaucoma. What is it? How you can recognize it? And what you can do about it? Should you sleep with your pet? Well, a surprising study I'm going to be discussing. Then lastly, I'm going to be answering a question about aspirin. Can I give it to my dog and what do I need to watch for? Now Veterinary Secrets is on iTunes. Go to iTunes and search for Veterinary Secrets. We're also on Stitcher. Let's go ahead to Stitcher and search for Veterinary Secrets. I would definitely appreciate it if you would subscribe to my podcast and leave a review. You can do so on iTunes or Stitcher. Let's get right into today's podcast. Glaucoma. What is it? Well, glaucoma is increased pressure within the eye. It's called IOP or intraocular pressure. Cells inside the eye produce a clear fluid that maintains the shape of the eye and nourishes the tissues inside the eye. This is not the same fluid as tears. Tears bathe the outside surface of the eye. This fluid, it's called aqueous humor, it circulates inside the eye. And these two fluids, they don't interact. So the aqueous humor, that fluid in the eye, drains out of the eye into the bloodstream through the drainage angle. And I think of it like a sieve or just this little meshwork-like area where you know fluid is going to percolate out of the eye. So then there's the balance of the aqueous fluid production, and then there's the drainage. And that's responsible for maintaining normal pressure within the eye. In glaucoma, the drain becomes partially blocked, or else there's too much fluid being produced. Regardless, there's an increase in pressure to build inside the eye. And if this is untreated, this increased pressure usually causes irreversible blindness, in addition to the stretching and then the enlargement of the eye. So there's two types of glaucoma. There's primary glaucoma. It's an inherited condition. It occurs in many breeds of dogs, including the American Cocker Spaniel, Basset, Chow, Drac... Russell, Sharpay, Shih Tzu, some of the Arctic breeds like Siberian Husky and Elkhound. It's very rare in cats. It usually begins in one eye, but in most dogs it eventually affects both eyes, leading to complete blindness if not controlled. Secondary glaucoma occurs when there's other eye diseases that affect the drainage of the fluid from inside the eye. Some of the common causes of secondary glaucoma include inflammation within the eye, it's called uveitis, you can get advanced cataracts, you know, some, some type of mass such as cancer. You have the lens moving called lens subluxation or luxation. And sometimes you can actually have that lens that is actually floating within the eye itself, causing both damage and chronic retinal detachment. Glaucoma in cats is almost always secondary to chronic uveitis. That's inflammation within the structures within the eye. Treatment for secondary glaucoma, it's very broad to be presented here it is critical to treat the cause of the glaucoma whenever possible. It occurs, glaucoma occurs far more frequently in dogs than it does in cats. There's primary hereditary breed-related glaucoma is most commonly seen in pure breed dogs. Cats usually have secondary glaucoma. Glaucoma can be a very painful disease for pets, more so than for people, as intraocular pressure can become very rapidly elevated to levels much higher than typically occur in people. In us, in people, the pain feels like a constant bad headache. Normal intraocular ocular pressure that's IOP in people is 12 to 22. The normal pressure for dogs and cats is 10 to 25. With glaucoma in cats and dogs, the pressure can go up to 30 in no time. Values above 50 rapidly cause blindness or very painful. It may cause the eye to stretch and enlarge. You're actually seeing a bulging eye. An affected eye may look normal to a pet owner when the glaucoma is mild. Early signs can include a bloodshot eye, cloudy cornea, dilated pupil, and squinting wholly of the eye closed. Over time, the eye size can increase and it may Unfortunately, in cases of severe glaucoma, the eye is often 
permanently blind by the time of the diagnosis. Pets can act normal with vision in just one eye, which is one reason glaucoma is often diagnosed late in the disease's course. So how do you diagnose it? Diagnosing whether or not your dog has primary or secondary glaucoma is important because the treatment needed in the prognosis for vision is very different for each type of glaucoma. So veterinary ophthalmologists measure this IOP, this pressure. They'll use a thing called a slit lamp biomicroscopy, indirect ophthalmoscopy, gonioscopy to determine the type and cause of glaucoma in your pet. So for the most part, you're going to be seeing your local veterinarian and they use a thing called tonometry, which is a measurement of interocular pressure. And there's three basic types of instruments that can be used to measure this IOP. The best tonometers are called the tonopen. And many veterinarians don't have these, so it'll, they can actually put that right, that little pen right on the surface of your dog or your cat's eye measuring pressure. Um, they're fairly costly computerized handheld devices. Another sort of older device is called the Shiatz tonometer. It works well. It's a little bit more difficult to use in animals, really dependent on the scale of the veterinarian and how they use it appropriately. And last one, there's a thing called <laughs> gonioscopy, which helps determine how predisposed the remaining visual eye is to develop glaucoma when primary glaucoma is present in the other eye. And this is something that you're going to need to get at uh, a specialized veterinarian and ophthalmologist, and it's usually performed under sedation. So then the question is, you know, how do you know if your pet has glaucoma? The thing is you don't. The only way to know if your pet has glaucoma is you need to have intraocular pressures measured, called IOPs, by a veterinarian, preferably by a veterinary ophthalmologist, hopefully by a veterinarian that has a tonometer. It can be difficult to accurately measure IOP uh, if your dog is in pain or agitated, and if they're using one of the old Shiatz tonometer, preferably a tonopen. Signs of glaucoma, you know, as we referred to them earlier, include red or bloodshot eye and or, and or cloudy cornea. That's the surface of the eye, otherwise known by some people as the windshield. Often the eye can look normal to the pet owner or even to some general veterinarians, general practitioners. They'll look at it, it looks okay, but it's not. Vision loss is also characteristic of glaucoma. However, loss of vision in one eye is usually not obvious because our pets do such a good job of compensating very well by using their remaining eye that works. Eventually, the increased IOP, that intraocular pressure, will cause the eye to stretch and enlarge. Unfortunately, by the time you as the owner notices this enlarged eye, it's too late. Eyes are permanently blind, but at the time they're obviously enlarged. So you really need to know some of the early signs watching it early. What if one eye is already lost to primary glaucoma? It's very likely that the remaining eye is at high risk for developing glaucoma at a future time. Research has shown that the average time until a glaucoma attack occurs in the remaining eye is eight months. However, you can be looking at prophylactic medical therapy and regularly monitoring of the IOP, that intraocular pressure for the remaining eye, can delay the onset of glaucoma from eight months to at least 31 months. The onset of glaucoma might even further be delayed by providing your dog with a daily canine antioxidant vision supplement. There's one called OcuGlow, and I'll put a link to it under this podcast. You can actually find OcuGlow at OcuGlow.com. O-C-U glo.com. Well, how is it treated? So I just want to give you the medical therapy, um, the conventional one, some of the alternative options. Since glaucoma occurs because fluid is not draining from the eye fast enough, the logical treatment would be ideally just opening up, opening up the drain, get it to drain faster. Which doesn't is really difficult to do in animals. Therefore, many glaucoma therapies are aimed aimed at decreasing fluid production. So there's several different types of costly drops and pills that help decrease fluid production or increase fluid drainage or both. While these medications 
medications are helpful in animals, they usually don't control glaucoma long-term, and often they don't work well at all for when there's an acute crisis, like we've got to bring this eye pressure down. Consequently, they're used mostly to help prevent or delay the onset of a glaucoma in the remaining visual eye, and sometimes as a temporary treatment until surgery can be performed in the affected eye. So a couple of ones that I use in practice, and especially in referrals from an ophthalmologist. There's one called Zalatan. It's a prostaglandin analog. It works by increasing the outflow of fluid from the eye. The other one is a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor. It reduces eye pressure by decreasing the production of the fluid. The one that we used in practice is called Trusop. So what about the complementary and alternative options? So this consists of lifetime supplementation with a pharmaceutical grade canine oxidant vision supplement. And the one in particular that's been studied, which has been shown to be effective is called Oculo that I just we made reference to. So specific antioxidant nutraceutical support of the eye can help reduce oxidative damage in the cells inside the eye that are responsible for proper drainage of fluid. Oculo has also been shown to be neuroprotective in a research model of mice with genetic glaucoma. In other words, Oculo helps to protect the optic nerve cells from dying when glaucoma is present. It's also helpful to control stress. You know, if your dog is chronic stress in its life, this can negatively affect the general health, immune system, and the ability to ward off oxidative damage in the body, including the eyes. So it's also important to reduce pressure on the juggler veins in the neck, as this can increase the IOP if your dog is pulling on a leash attached to a neck collar. Dogs with glaucoma are at risk of developing glaucoma should have leashes attached to harnesses and not neck collars to prevent pressure on the juggler veins, which in, which in turn can increase IOP and trigger a glaucoma attack. So some of the other things, we're going to look at some of the other antioxidants. So think, think of looking at some type of supplement that's got additional antioxidants. So looking at additional vitamin E, looking at additional selenium, looking at additional, additional vitamin C. One herb in particular, which is proving to be anti inflammatory potentially helpful um, as well as helping for eye health would be turmeric and in spe- and specifically you want to get the 95% curcuminoids and the dose that I've talked about earlier with a variety of different things is 100 milligrams per 10 pounds of body weight daily um, you can actually get the 95% curcuminoids in a capsule usually you're getting about a 400 milligram capsule if your dog has already lost one eye to primary glaucoma and the remaining eye is at high risk for developing glaucoma there are choices for treatment um, so we talked about some of those eye drops that I referred to earlier, and then you can also look at some of the supplements, you know, such as the Oculo or the other ones I mentioned. But if the eye is blind, so if your your dog has a blind eye itself, where it's gone to the point where it's affected vision, it's no longer present. Cu- controlling glaucoma with long-term medical and alternative treatment is usually not the best choice. Eventually, it's going to fail, requiring surgery to relieve chronic discomfort. So medical treatment is delaying the inevitable in most cases. Why commit to a lifetime medical treatment for an eye that's not going to see again? It's easy enough to have your veterinarian look at doing a new chelation as far as surgery. It's a fairly simple procedure, and as you said, for us to get over it, okay, most dogs adapt wonderfully. There are some other specific types of surgeries that an ophthalmologist would need to do. So the type of surgical procedure chosen to treat glaucoma depends upon whether or not the eye still has a potential for functional vision. For visual or potential visualizer glaucoma, the IOP can be controlled by performing a delicate endolaser cyclophotocoagulation laser surgery, in which a laser probe is inserted into the eye and the laser beam selectively destroys some of the cells that produce the fluid. In order to position the laser correctly inside the eye, the lens must be first removed. After the surgery is done, an artificial lens is placed in the eye. Sometimes a third procedure is also performed right after the artificial lens is placed, inserting an artificial drainage device into the eye. ECPC is a very complicated procedure and is performed 
by a very few veterinarian ophthalmologists. For permanent blind eyes, the choices are one, you know, removing the eye enucleation with the, option, with the option of placing a sterile prosthetic ball implant in the eye socket prior to skin closure. An implant can be placed inside the eye, giving the pet partially artificial eye, or an injection of a drug into the eye can be performed that kills the fluid-producing cells and reduces the pressure. So what you need to do, first of all, is in, in summary, just being aware of some of those signs of glaucoma, where we talked about some of the initial signs where you've got, you know, this red eye, changes to the surface of the eye, that windshield or the cornea, your your dog is potentially rubbing it. And secondly, too, if you've got a breed that's at risk, you're, you're aware of those. And if there's any question at all, seeing your veterinarian and, or someone who actually has a ton of head, they can get an accurate measurement of IOP. And if that's the case, you're on it. And the next big thing I'd encourage all of you to do is look at seeing an ophthalmologist, a veterinary ophthalmologist for sure. And, you know, if you've got a breed at risk, especially some of the ones that we referred to earlier, consider some form of supplement like Oculo. They'll do no harm, potentially a whole lot of good. And the website to look at Oculo again is www.oculo.com, O-C-U-G-L-O.com. So let's get into the second part of today's podcast. Sharing a bed with your pet, believe it or not, it could help you sleep. So do you allow your dog or cat to snuggle up with you in your bed? If not, you might want to reconsider this. New research finds that for the most for most people, the presence of a pet in their bedroom could benefit sleep. And this comes from a study from the Mayo Clinic lead author, Louis Cron for sleep medicine in Scottsdale, Arizona. And colleagues published their findings in the Mayo Clinic proceeding. And it goes without saying, yes, the United States and Canada too were nations of animal lovers, saying 65% uh, of American and likely the similar number of Canadian households own a pet, the most common companions being dogs and cats. There have been numerous studies hailing the benefits of pet ownership, you know, such as children with pet dogs experience less stress. But according to Dr. Cron and colleagues, there is limited quality research on how the presence of a pet in the bedroom may impact an owner's sleep. To address the research gap, the team surveyed 150 patients at the Center for Sleep Medicine, of whom 74 reported owning at least one pet, mostly dog and cats. The researchers gathered various information, including whether they allowed or not they allowed their pet to sleep in their bedroom and on the bed, and whether the pet is disrupted for their sleep. Around 56% of pet owners reported allowing their pets to sleep in their bedroom or the bed. Disruptor, disruptive behaviors such as wandering, whimpering, and snoring were reported by 20% of owners who allowed their pet to sleep close by. However, 41% of owners said their pets were not disruptive with some, particularly individuals who were single, saying their presence even helped them sleep by providing security, companionship, or relaxation. It's been my own experience, you know, especially when I started out in veterinary practice and I was working as a locum, going from clinic to clinic, spending time in northern parts of British Columbia. It was great to have my dog Hoochie with me, and no question, he slept on my bed. One woman described her two small dogs as bed warmers, while another woman described her cat as soothing when he slept in her bed. I concur. A single 64-year-old woman said she felt more content when her dog slept under the covers by her feet. The value of these experiences, although poorly understood, could not be dismissed because sleep is dependent on a state of physical and mental relaxation. These findings may help doctors counsel patients with sleep problems, according to the researchers. Healthcare professionals working with patients with sleep concerns should inquire about the home sleep environment and companion animals specifically to help them find solutions and optimize their sleep. The authors note some limitations to their study. For, for example, they did not gather data assessing whether individuals being treated for sleep disorders such as sleep apnea find a pet sleeping nearby beneficial or more disruptive. Additionally, the team notes that there may have been some response bias from pet owners. You know, respondents are 
appeared eager to disclose whether they owned a pet or not, and where it slept, but seemed more reluctant to reveal any undesirable consequences, they explain. This response bias may have resulted in these data, underreporting the frequency of disrupted sleep. Still, the researchers conclude further research investigating how pets in the bedroom impact a person's sleep is warranted. Um, my own personal experience, it sure helped me sleep. Lastly, I had a question from a listener, you know, what is aspirin? Can I give it to my dog? Can you give me some more information on it? So what is ASA or aspirin? It's called acetosalic acid and it's a common non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug used to relieve pain and reduce fever and specifically prescribed for dogs for arthritic disorders because it interferes with platelet aggregation that that's part of the body's um, clotting mechanism aspirin has some value in the treatment of clotting disorders it is given preventively for patients at risk for myocardial infarction that's a specific type of heart attack more typically in people uh, and those at risk of thromboemboli that's something that we do see in some of our cats so for most of you listening, you've got dogs and you've thought about using it, you know, as as for pain relief, my dog just injured himself, he's limping like my dog Lewis right now, perhaps as an anti-inflammatory, perhaps to take down a fever. I'd be very cautious ever about giving it to your cats and never advising anyone listening to give it to your cat. The only cases I did this in veterinary practice is when we were trying to prevent recurrence of thromboemboli so there's there's a type of condition where our cats can actually get a type of blood clot um, often it'll occur um, affecting their back ladies called a saddle thrombus and then it's not uncommon to see it in cats that have an underlying heart condition you know um, so, such as hypertrophic cardiomyopathy they've got this thick and heart walls making them predisposed developing this, this type of blood clot so in those cases we'd be giving them as low as you know a half of a baby aspirin every 40 hours really low low aspirin doses but it's only done by your veterinarian for all of you listening um, I'm just speaking to you as dog owners first, so n- having no cat owners ever give this to their cat unless under the prescription of a veterinarian. So yes, this is something that you could consider giving for your dog as a measure of pain control. Um, there's a number of different things you need to be aware of. First, for some of the side effects, um, primary, you can see some of the other ans- non-steroidal anti-inflammatory enter- type drugs, so vomiting and diarrhea. It can affect the liver, it can, it can affect the kidney. So those are potential side effects. More typically, it's GI signs vomiting diarrhea and if you see those you just get your dog off that medication you definitely don't want to give it if your dog is other on other anti-inflammatory type medications you know such as medicam such as ramadol etc so all those other non-steroidal type anti-inflammatory drugs um, if your dog is on a steroid such as prednisone you don't want to be giving it if your dog is prone um, to, to having side effects from these anti-inflammatory drugs you don't want to give it if your dog has some type of underlying bleeding disorder clearly you don't want to be give it never give it to any animal that is pregnant any dog that is pregnant or potentially pregnant um, some of the other drugs that can react to occasionally have dogs on prozac so if they're on prozac you don't want to be on it keopectate peptobismol some types of those can actually have the salicylates in them so if you're you don't want to be giving keopectate as well as aspirin or peptobismol as well as as well as aspirin cautious and older dogs don't be giving it to your dog if they're dehydrated so knowing all those concerns for the most part if you've got sort of middle-aged pretty active 
active dog, or even my own, my own dog, Lewis. He's 12. But if he's well hydrated, I know he doesn't have underlying liver or kidney disease. He's been on an anti-inflammatory before, had no side effects. So if he's especially limpy, which he has been lately, I've been, he's been doing a fair amount of hills. He's got quite a sore um, left shoulder. And then I've given him aspirin as an NSAID occasionally. The dose that you should be looking at is 325 milligrams for 50 pounds of body weight daily. It's preferable to give the uncoated aspirin. The coated one can sometimes pass right through your dog. And that's something you can give twice daily as needed. Um, generally, I advise, you know, doing it. If you can just do one today, that's better. Low it, and ideally, you're looking at the lowest effective dose. Tell your veterinarian if you're going to be giving it long term, ensuring that there's no medication side effects. And if you're not sure at all, clearly talk to your veterinarian. Lastly, for any of the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, including aspirin and anything else, it's really beneficial to also be giving it along with colostrum. So colostrum, you can actually get it now in a variety of different supplements, but it's got great immune protective benefits for the gut. And what we're finding is if dogs are on colostrum as well as being on these NSAIDs, they have much lower incidence of vomiting, diarrhea, more serious things like ulcers, etc. happening. Um, so if your dog's going to be on something like aspirin long term, look at also supplementing with colostrum. So that comes at the end of today's podcast. Thank you for listening. Believe it or not, we're actually at episode 30. Wow, that's hard to believe. Well, thank you for listening to this podcast. And if you've listened to some of the other ones, if you've yet to subscribe, I encourage you to do so. You can do that on iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you're listening to today's podcast. Any questions or concerns? A couple things. You can send me an email at podcast at veterinarysecrets.com. I'd love to hear some of your feedback. You can leave a comment on the blog at internetpetvet.com. Um, and... If you, but if you have anything to say at all, just fire me off an email. I'd love to hear about it. And that's at podcast at Once again, thanks for listening. And I'll be talking to you again next week. This is Dr. Jones.